don't give it like a the podcast platform of the Phenomenalist by Leopold Lambert. Today, keep your eye on the wall with Olivia Stage. Hello everyone, today my guest is uh, Olivia Snage, who is uh, an a freelance journalist and a, an editor of books that uh, we will talk about today. She's been working a lot uh, uh, about the Middle East uh, and she's based in Paris. Uh, hello Olivia. Hello. Uh, thanks for taking the time to talk to me today about um, well various things, but mostly around uh, one book you've been publishing Uh, uh, in the recent years called uh, Keep an Eye on the Wall about the, the apartheid world in, in, uh, in Palestine. Uh, but before we, before we, uh, we jump to that, well, and actually we, we won't be jumping, we'll be slowly going there, uh, we, can, we, we can maybe talk about your, your work in general, maybe starting with uh, what you're currently doing. Could you t tell us a bit about um, that? Yes, what I'm currently working on is a, a new project for me. Uh, I'm working on a graphic novel, uh, but it will be about the Middle East. And uh, it was inspired by the story, the real story, of a friend of mine who's a diplomat who's been working in the Middle East for years. Uh, and he has a cat called Ulysses who travels everywhere with him. And so I thought I'd tell the story of the Middle East from the point of view of his cat, Ulysses, uh, which allows me to be able to uh, criticize everyone <laughs> unconditionally. <laughs> And uh, it's... Um, a great liberty to be uh, uh, taking on the persona of a cat. Hmm. So that's funny, that's sort of a remake of James Joyce uh, through, through the eyes of a cat. <laughs> it could be, yeah. it could be, yeah. Hmm. And, um, and cats have the reputation of being, uh, 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 let's say, uh, brutally honest with human beings, and so uh, we shall, I shall try to be uh, uh, brutally honest about the despairing situation in the Middle East. Hmm. So one of the um, one of your mediums, so to speak, to to carry your your discourse is um, is uh, editing books in in general and maybe coll collaborating with a few people to do so. Um, maybe maybe we can talk a, a tiny bit about the the your the one book you made with uh, uh, Charlotte Puquet. Um, uh, and starting to talk about uh, starting this conversation the same way we started it with our common friend Bakti Schringer Pouret uh, about, about the food and uh, the, the politics of food uh, uh, could you tell us a bit about this, uh, this book? Yeah, um, well the idea uh, came to me because uh, uh, I was working for the Daily Star which is um, an English language newspaper in Lebanon and uh, At that time, I was interviewing um, Arab uh, uh, people in culture in Europe. And so I'd do portraits of them and, and I'd write them for the newspaper. And I realized that they always talked about food. They were obsessed with food. And I think that food is uh, the one uh, part of people's identity that they carry with them wherever they go. Um, and it's the last thing they hang on to. I mean, you can see it... Uh, 
in any country where there are immigrant communities, it's very important for them to hang on to their identity via food. And then, of course, you have the whole economic thing that follows. You have to have a shop where you can find the ingredients and so on. And uh, so with Charlotte, who is a chef, we thought we'd um, show people that Paris was a lot more cosmopolitan than uh, people think. Uh, most foreigners think that uh, people walk around with berets on their heads and carry baguettes under their arms. And you do see that sometimes, but mm. for the most Many part... Many French would like it to be <laughs> yeah, like that. Yeah. that is true. <laughs> but um, the fact of the matter is that uh, Paris is very cosmopolitan, and uh, we decided to focus on the cuisines of um, former French colonies, uh, because we thought those were the best in the city. Uh, you wouldn't come to Paris for an Indian meal, you would go to London. And at a certain point, I mean, you could almost say that uh, the, UK, the Great, Great Britain and France divided up the world, uh, and, uh, and you can see that in the cuisines. I mean, you get... Um, Uh, great food here from Vietnam, former Southeast Asia, you know, the former French colonies and uh, uh, Francophone Africa, um, uh, certain parts of the Levant that were French. So uh, you have Lebanon, uh, you have Syria and so on. And uh, of course, uh, the Maghreb, the uh, uh, North Africa. Mm. And you don't find fantastic North African food, you know, elsewhere. Um, although now there is a certain Moroccan community in London, but... Uh, They're more. Um, they're not French speaking. They're from the north. So. Uh, mm. anyway. Well, uh, staying with this idea of language, and uh, I, I guess uh, I'm also, I'm also coming with this question, having just finished one, yet one more <laughs> book by Edouard Glissant and about the the métissage and the métissage uh, through language and the creolization of the world, as he, as he talks about. Uh, that's I think that's something that you're very interested in as well, and uh, in particular, uh, still in this idea of making books, uh, the, um, this uh, always difficult assignment of translating uh, from one language to another. Uh, and I'm thinking in particular of an article that I would uh, I will add to the page of the podcast for people to be able to to read it. But there, uh, uh, an article that you wrote about uh, um, uh, your friend. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, she's a she's actually a, a fascinating person. I I, uh, I think you're talking about an article about uh, translation between Arabic and Hebrew, <laughs> and the politics of translation. Um, I was actually inspired to write this article after I saw uh, a documentary by an Israeli filmmaker called uh, Nurit Aviv, uh, called I think it's called Translate. And she was talking about Hebrew, but what um, what inspired me was in particular when she interviewed uh, a Palestinian who uh, is a Palestinian Israeli, and um, he translates from Hebrew to Arabic and vice versa. So it's it's rare, first of all, to to uh, have someone who translates in both directions, but. Um, Uh, his name is Allah Hlehel, and uh, what he said was he has a very difficult um, relationship with Hebrew because he said it's the same language in which, you know, uh, an Israeli general will order the destruction of Palestinian houses as uh, the same language of poets and playwrights that he loves who, who write in Hebrew. Uh, so um, it's very interesting, his relationship with, with, with the language. And this led me to search for Yael Lerer, who luckily I found magically in Paris. <laughs> And she is um, uh, an activist who is always um, uh, 
fought for Palestinian rights, and she was actually the spokesperson for Azmi Bishara, who was a member of parliament, member of Israeli parliament, but Palestinian, and he's now been banned. And um, she founded a uh, publishing company called Al Andalus, which of course reflects back to the golden days uh, of. Uh, of um, when the Arabs were in, mm. in Spain and so on. In Andalusia. In, in Andalusia, yeah. exactly. And um, she wanted to translate into Hebrew <clears throat> literary works from Arabic. And uh, she didn't want to normalize uh, uh, the situation. In other words, she's, she's for uh, uh, BDS, boycott, divestment and mm. sanctions. But she, she wanted to contribute in any way possible of bringing Arab culture and literature to uh, a wider audience. And she was in Israel at the time. Um, so she even got uh, Mahmoud Darwish when he was still alive to give her the rights uh, for his poetry. And she had professional translators and so on. Unfortunately, it wasn't sustainable because she realized that Israelis are simply not interested in Arabic uh, literature. Mm. So she let things drop and now she lives here in Paris and uh, mm. does a wide variety of things. So the people of the villa are not interested in the jungle literature, right? <laughs> to, no, to take their, no, I mean... The uh, awful metaphor of uh, um, Elud Barak, sorry. Exactly. Uh, yeah, no, that that's for sure. I mean... She, She, uh, uh, yeah, she realized that um, that there simply wasn't much interest. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, as I said, we are going slowly towards uh, this book. Uh, keep an eye on the wall, um, and uh, and uh, I think the, the transition was smooth enough, <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, to the point that uh, Yerera is also part of this book as part of the contributors. She wrote an essay. Um, So the book, the idea for the book, uh, Keep Your Eye on the Wall... Um, It was uh, Mitchell Albert, right? With, yeah, with uh, co-editor Mitchell Albert. Uh, both he and I had worked a lot on um, uh, topics around the Middle East, and we wanted to um, uh, create a photography book um, where Palestinian photographers... There's actually one other photographer who's not Palestinian, who's German, but... Um, Uh, could uh, interpret this ghastly wall that is in the West Bank and uh, was in parts of Gaza uh, visually, photo photographically. And uh, we also have several essays um, on different subjects. And in fact, Yael Lehrer, uh, who is one of the rare Israelis to uh, not pay attention to uh, Israeli law, which says that Israelis are not allowed to go into these areas that are Palestinians, Palestinian, and she crossed over and so on. And, and uh, she talks about the incredibly complex uh, sort of architecture of the roads and checkpoints and so on and traveling around them. Mm. Uh, and uh, in the English version, because there's been there's been a French version as well, but mm -hmm. in the English version, you even have a, a, it was a great surprise for me. You, you have a preface done by uh, Raja Shehadeh, yeah. uh, who's a, for people who don't know him, who's a, a lawyer in uh, in Ramallah, and who's been uh, fighting cases of expropriation uh, uh, by the Israeli army uh, for the last 20 years, and uh, who's been writing many books as well. Um, who Which is always reaches a very very interesting uh, articulation of autobiographical narrative and and very thorough uh, uh, and complex critic of uh, of the occupation. 
and uh, who happens to be a friend of Archipelago and normally should be part of it in uh, in two months when uh, Archipelago will be in Palestine, which is oh, great. That's great. <laughs> He's also an avid hiker and um, yeah. one book that was a huge success in the UK, I'm not sure if it was a big success in the US, is uh, his book Palestine Walks where he hikes around and keeps running into the wall, mm. and which is an opportunity for him to talk about the wall uh, very often. So he was um, the logical candidate for us to, to write the preface, and, mm. and we were incredibly happy that he, uh, that he was able to. I mean, it was wonderful for mm. us. It was published by Galadi in France, which are, are other friends as well, so <laughs> can salute them. Uh, and... Um, Uh, so if I mean we could we could almost go one by one uh, in uh, every text and uh, fo fo photograph uh, photographs photographic series of the uh, that are part of the book. Um, I don't know if we should even uh, introduce the wall in itself. Uh, uh, I suppose one thing that people uh, who are not necessarily following uh, everything that's going on in Palestine uh, don't don't always know that they're, I mean, or maybe sometimes are, are pushed to think that the, the walls are, is, is actually following the green line of 1949, the armistice line, which obviously is absolutely not the case. It's, it's diving right into the Palestinian territory in the West Bank and, and trying to bring as many Israeli settlements uh, on the western side of the wall and creating, creating sometimes some enclaves, that some enclaves uh, in which uh, Palestinian villages are, are finding themselves almost trapped, trapped into. But, um, uh, I mean, I think, I think the best, probably the best way to, to talk about this book is to follow the book itself. And, I, I mean, I have, I have a few, uh, I have a few uh, uh, chapters in these books that I'd like to talk about, and maybe we can talk about more. Uh, one of which is an essay by uh, Malou Alassa, mm -hmm. uh, who is talking about a very interesting problem uh, that you probably encounter during the book itself, which is the, the, the idea of aesthetization mm -hmm. of the wall itself, like uh, a very uh, a very interesting dilemma, so to speak. In, Absolutely. In the, and uh, and she's uh, she's starting an article by talking about the story when Banksy That's did right. his graffiti. Maybe you can tell us. Uh, well, I mean, the story she uses is uh, uh, Banksy uh, who traveled um, to the West Bank to do his now famous uh, uh, stencils, I think they are, on the wall. And uh, an Israeli soldier <clears throat> wanted him to stop and... Uh, an old man who was Palestinian who was Palestinian wanted him to stop. So for once, the Israelis and the Palestinians were in agreement, uh, except that um, the Palestinian man didn't want him to beautify the wall. He said it was something ugly and that it should remain ugly. And that's what a lot of um, Palestinians feel. On the other hand, um, many see it as a blank canvas, uh, you know, to do things on. And I mean, the, the terrible fact of the matter is that, you know, they live with this wall And um, uh, it's not, I, I mean, I hope it comes down soon, but I don't think it will be coming down anytime soon. And they have to live with it. And, and so they make use of it. And I mean, in Bethlehem, for example, I went to a cafe right by the wall and they said that uh, at the time they were, they were projecting films onto mm. the wall or football matches or whatever. And it was a way of using it. Um, 
it's true that it's it's you don't want it to become part of the landscape, and yet it's almost inevi- inevitable. Um, in the film uh, Omar by Hani Abouassef, you know the wall is constantly there, and the main character has to climb over the wall all the time. Um, but the wall is so terrible and so ugly that at the same time, I think it it's difficult to really make it beautiful. I mean, it's it's impossible. It's there. It's 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 shocking. Um, two of uh, the photographers um, uh, who worked on the book, Raida Sade and Rula Halawani, uh, talk about how uh, they turn their heads when they when they see it mm-hmm. every time they drive by. They Kandashan drive by it every well, day. Yeah. yeah, they drive by it every day, and and it's just um, it's it's such an eyesore, mm-hmm. and it's uh, so symbolic of of power and and uh, separation and destruction and land grab and everything. Mm-hmm. It's it's a perfect symbol. But may- maybe to come back to the Banksy story, I think, and I th- that may be the difference as well between the the cafe that does projection, the Palestinian cafe that does mm-hmm. projection on the wall, and Banksy that does his uh, stencils. Uh, uh, I mean, and I mean, uh, again, the question is open, but Banksy comes from the outside, and and it's quite interesting the way the, the the story is told, and maybe it's even Banksy himself who told the story, and and in that, in, if that's the case, he probably understood the problem, problem, uh, the problem that he was raising, because the, the Palestinian old man tells him like, "You're making the world beautiful." And he says, "Oh, thanks." He's like, "No, no." He's like, "No, you're making it beautiful. We don't want it beautiful. Mm, we want, mm. want it to stay ugly for what it is." And so I thought that was an interesting uh, attention here in in the fact that he he says thank you, thinking it's a compliment. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's hard to put yourself in the place of someone you know who who sees this every day, and and I think a lot of people don't realize just how just what it's like. Um, Uh, it's interesting because we had several exhibitions of photographs um, from the book in various places. In fact, when the book was launched, we had a big exhibition at um, the Rencontre d'Arles, which is uh, the biggest photography festival in Europe. And then it went on to Paris and so on. And we also had an exhibition in Ramallah, Mm. uh, which the Franco-German cultural organization uh, uh, supported. And... um, Uh, we thought, gosh, you know, we had our we our doubts. We thought, you know, why why bring photographs of the wall to Palestine when when you know people see it all the time and it's terrible and we weren't quite sure. But actually, the reactions we had from Palestinians living there when they saw the the images uh, were were fascinating and. Um, Because some of them said uh, the Israelis built the wall very slowly and by the end we didn't even notice it was there anymore. Others uh, felt it was so painful that it was a taboo that they couldn't talk about. And so when they saw the photographs, it helped them express themselves. Um, Some, you know, were fascinated and um, felt comforted uh, by the fact that people in Europe were actually seeing what the wall looked like. Uh, because when you see it in the book, it's it's interpreted in different ways. So sometimes it's documentary, sometimes it's black and white, sometimes it's very playful. Um, again, with Raida Sade, she's sort of the Cindy Sherman <laughs> of of Palestine, and she she um, you know she she takes photographs of herself in different um, uh, poses in front of the wall. So so people were interested to see it interpreted in different ways and. Um, uh, 
yeah. Mm. No, but we we can stay with uh, Rada Seade mm-hmm. because it's. Um, I think that was that was definitely a, a strong moment of the book because it, it's. Um, uh, I mean, I, I suppose every artist you and photographers you've been uh, asking to participate uh, all have their own idea of what a photograph is. So, so mm-hmm. some are photograph in the way we we think about it. Mm-hmm. Let's say, but mm-hmm. so, some others are did uh, are more what we would usually call uh, artwork uh, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that's her case and uh, she she has a particular work uh, with uh, I think it's her her own body right Mm -hmm, Uh, it's herself she uses herself um, she's used uh, uh, she's taken inspiration from various artists um, uh, Da Vinci Vermeer all sorts of people and she puts herself into uh, poses the milkmaid or Penelope or whatever and um, uh, she also uses video she does performance art so it's true she is uh, more of a sort of multimedia artist in that sense and she went to art school her background is interesting because she's uh, she was born in the uh, largest uh, Palestinian town one of the largest Palestinian towns in Israel so uh, she she has an Israeli passport and she and uh, when she moved to Jerusalem, she sort of discovered um, her Palestinian identity uh, because she was able to meet and, and, and be with uh, Palestinians from the West Bank. And that was a revelation for her. And she realized how much Hebrew had crept into her language, um, just changing names and so on. And, uh, and so now she uses this figure of a, a woman, which is herself, and... Uh, uh, to um, to express uh, uh, her feelings about the occupation and identity and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, she has a sort of, I mean, one one of the photo, and uh, again, we'll try to add them so for the listeners to be able to know what we're talking mm-hmm. about. But one of them is particularly striking, at least to me, is uh, the she reproduced a, l- a little version of the of the wall. I mean, uh, a, f- a few a few inches only, but. Uh, that that she she applies directly on her face mm. and uh, mm-hmm. and it has something very strong in the collision of the body and and the wall in in her in a kind of uh, an interesting manufactured way I suppose absolutely mm. yeah and it's, it's there's something very sculptural about mm. it and she's integrated it into her her being um, and she come she represents it and she's used that um, way of working in in other works of art too. Mm. Mm. Uh, maybe talking about another photographer, uh, Rula Alawani. Mm-hmm. Um, she decided to take photos of the gate mm-hmm. of the wall, and there's a uh, I forgot I saw I, I knew the number at some point, but there's a few a few dozens gates uh, mm. all, all along the walls. Um, uh, I mean, so uh, very few of them are actually checkpoints and. Most of the others are access for mm-hmm. uh, the army, or uh, that's right. But the particularity of these of these guest gates, sorry, is that they are closed, and and yeah. for some reason, and I think the, those photos are extremely evocative for, for that matter. Is uh, a closed gate is symbolically even stronger than the wall itself? I feel. As, yeah, yeah. I mean, Rula Halawani is a real Jerusalemite. I mean, she's um, she's always lived there her family's always lived there and she has a a Jordanian passport and an Israeli permit to to live in Jerusalem and um, she remembers Jerusalem from when she was a child uh, 
Of course, the situation has never been ideal, but it's just gotten worse and worse. And of course, with the construction of the wall, it's just, I mean, it's, it's terrifying. When you live in East Jerusalem, uh, she's seen the settlements grow. And, and uh, so when we asked her to collaborate on this project, she, um, she was driving around and, and she realized that uh, all these gates, I think some of which were open when she was a child, are now all closed. And as you say... Um, it's more, almost more desolate uh, uh, and definitive than, than the wall itself, these, uh, these closed gates. Mm-hmm. And the light that she uses, the tone, uh, everything about it um, expresses uh, a sort of um, uh, desperation about the situation and loneliness, too. Mm-hmm. Um. And um, maybe going back to, maybe I should have asked this question before, but going back to this idea of problematic aesthetization of the wall, mm. this is obviously a question you might have, might, must have encountered yourself, making a book uh, mm-hmm. uh, on, on this wall and a curating photograph of the book and therefore mm-hmm. a sort of uh, aesthetization of some kind, whether, whether it is... Uh, uh, I mean, those, these photos are, uh, are beautiful, they're they're powerful in their mm-hmm. in the emotions they convey and uh, everything. So could you maybe tell us this encounter for you of this problematic aspect of aesthetization? Um, well, it wasn't. Uh, it was important for us to have an essay like Malu Halasa's, um, bringing up the problem. But I think looking one step farther, for us it was even more important that people in the West realize what this wall is. And uh, we gave the photographers a very wide berth. We just said, please interpret um, the wall how you like. Uh, So we weren't quite sure what they were going to um, give us. Uh, But in the end, I think it works quite well because um, they're all very different, uh, the photographs. And um, yes, perhaps they are beautiful and aesthetic, but I still think that it's in in the end you, you can see... Um, you know, how ghastly the wall is. I mean, I'm thinking of, uh, for example, Steve Sabella's photographs uh, uh, because we have the the larger image and then a detail of the photograph. And one photograph, which is one of my favorites, um, you look at it and you think, oh, they're they're beautiful sort of plants or or bushes. And then you look closer and you see that it's razor wire. Mm. It's barbed wire. And... um, so I think that's also a way of, of, I mean, in every photograph, there's something that shows that um, uh, there's oppression and occupation and mm-hmm. the, the, the situation as it is. And one of the photographer, and I'm sure you will tell us uh, his name or her name, I, I forgot, uh, took photos of, um, uh, of something else than the visible wall, which was interesting, which was a... The, the life of Palestinian workers who mm-hmm. who climb work, over the wall, yeah, mm-hmm. which which I guess uh, uh, um, uh, brings brings us back to uh, uh, a work like Khaled Jafar has been doing about mm-hmm. uh, his film The Infiltrators. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, mm-hmm. But could you tell us about that? Yeah, you're talking about a photographer for, called um, Raed Bawaya, <laughs> who works in uh, black and white and. Um, uh, he does portraits mainly, and so he uh, did a series of portraits of uh, workers from Palestine who have to climb over the wall uh, in order to find work as uh, agricultural in, in agriculture, so um, as farmhands or, or working the land 
on the other side of the wall, and they often have to stay there for several months because they're going to be doing whatever it is, picking a vegetable or fruit, um, at great risk of being found and you know thrown in prison or whatever. And so they have to make uh, uh, they have makeshift camps, you know, where they where they um, sleep. And also, one of his photographs is someone in a in a makeshift shower, uh, and uh, it's this whole. Uh, way that that they have to operate in order to to earn a living, and um, Raid Bawaya himself, it's it's rather interesting because he um, had to get over the wall uh, illegally for several years to attend an Israeli photography school, um, and uh, so that also was you know. Uh, uh, getting over the wall and getting through the checkpoint and so on was was very much part of his life, as it is part of everyone's life. I mean, if you go there, you see people queuing, you know, for hours and hours and hours uh, at a checkpoint mm. and finding an easier way to go around the wall. And when you go to cities like um, a city like Hebron, where because of the wall now you have to drive 12 kilometers. Uh, around the wall, whereas before, wherever it was going to was was two minutes away. It's another, um, you know, example of how insane it mm. is. And it remains two minutes away, both for the army and the settlers, Absolutely. which is the thing Absolutely. we should say as well. I suppose. Um, maybe to to have a last chapter of this uh, conversation, um, I think maybe um, what the wall symbolize even more now than even before is um, is a separation of two nations even though once again that's kind of the imaginary that we are we're that we are being um, uh, forced to believe that once again it's a it's called a separation barrier mm. which obviously obviously it's it's not like that once again we, if we go back to the idea of East Jerusalem Uh, it's not Israeli on one side, Palestinian on the other. It's Palestinian on both sides and families that uh, were separated this way. Yeah, the wall separates Palestinians mm. from Palestinians. And uh, but so so the what I mean what I mean by the, by all that is um, is the idea that we are uh, there's an entire political class that would like us to believe that, and including Palestinian uh, political class, who would like us to believe that they're the what what's been uh, what's been historically now called a solution as if solution <laughs> there was uh is is a separation into two states so i mean we see uh, we see currently uh, uh some european parliaments including the european parliament itself uh, wondering about it and recognizing the state of palestine and uh and at first sight it seems to be good news but actually when you when we when we start wondering a little bit i think many of us are incredibly unsatisfied with the solution and and would like to see uh uh, uh not what we would call the one state solution because once again it is using a sort of a technocratic language and archipelago had been uh having a conversation called the no state solution with uh, Sofia Azeb which was uh, which was uh, immensely interesting um uh, m me talking a lot just to say that uh uh, uh the, the wall particularly incarnates this uh, this sort of uh, uh entity uh within the territory so i think uh, for this reason it's even stronger now than it, it used to be 
Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure. Is there a question? No. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe more of an an invitation to 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 share your own thoughts about this question. About yeah, I mean it's it's uh, it's a hard, it's a very difficult one. I mean I think uh, uh, any sort of wall is is counterproductive no matter what. In this case, uh, the wall, of course, is is incredibly. Um, uh, difficult for for Palestinians. It separates villages, people, families. Um, uh, it stops them from being able to move around. Uh, it's taken away land. It's a land grab, and so on. And as you say, uh, it is not a, a, a division between Israelis and Palestinians, um, because anyway, uh, all of the West Bank is occupied. So um, it's just a wall uh, creating. Uh, chaotic life for uh, an occupied people. Um, it's it's pretty terrifying if if you could um, be a uh, a bird and and sort of fly over uh, the region, you would see that Israelis have in effect closed themselves in. I mean, they're building a border now, um, a wall between Lebanon also. So if you were to look from above, you would just see a series of walls. Uh, which are imprisoning people. And in my view, the Israelis have imprisoned themselves as well. Uh, it's just that they're in a luxury prison and the others are in a, a terrible prison. And they have uh, they are allowed to leave and um, the others can't. Um, you don't just have the concrete as a wall either. For example, in Gaza, and I've spoken about this with uh, Taisir Batniji, who is another photographer in our book, and he's from Gaza. Uh, he talks. He's talked to me about the sea, the Mediterranean, being a prison, uh, because, as you know, in Gaza, uh, people can't go out more than I don't know exactly how many six meters, nautical miles. Six nautical miles, mm -hmm. and after that, they're shot at by the Israelis. So, uh, for them, the sea has become a prison. Mm -hmm. Uh, whereas people in the West Bank can't even go to the sea. So there are many different types of walls, and the Israelis have managed to even make um, natural things like the sea a mm. wall. Yeah, the, I mean, the, maybe what people are not necessarily aware of is that even the Dead Sea is not accessible, for, even the part of the Dead Sea that's in the West Bank is not accessible to Palestinians. Uh, some of... Some of it is, but there are beaches that are on uh, areas that are in areas that are technically supposed to be Palestinian, where it says no Palestinians mm -hmm. allowed. Um, I've been to some of those those beaches where we were with Palestinians and we said we refused to go in unless they they came in with us. Um, yeah, it's uh, absolutely um, uh, terrifying. Mm -hmm. And maybe some things that uh, Raja Shiade reminds us as well in this preface of your book is uh, um, that we're, right now we're talking mostly of a sort of a political uh, at a political level, but there are some huge economic uh, economic uh, issues involved as well. And I was thinking of the, the Dead Sea itself, for example, as being uh, as being a source of economy, and uh, and the wall itself being. Uh, I mean, there's been there's been obviously a, a bid for Israeli companies to build mm -hmm. the walls, and it's been a, it's been a, a real source, economic source uh, for uh, Israel. I mean, for the companies that are used to to 
construct uh, uh, mm -hmm. the occupation, right? So, I mean, I, I suppose um, that's the architect speaking here, mm -hmm. being very interested in that, but mm -hmm. uh, the problem is uh, holistic, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, any of the, the materials used, you know, the, the barbed wire, the barriers, the intricate uh, highways for settlers to go on that Palestinians can't. I mean, in terms of architecture, there's no question that it's a, a, a huge... Uh, a sort of construction boom as well, mm. uh, which makes it all the more cynical. Well, Olivia, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I think that creates a great introduction for uh, uh, the, the trip of Archipelago to Palestine in February. So that, that would be a, a perfect pre prelude. <laughs> thank, you. thank you. Thank <laughs> you.